I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and it is uh, such a joy uh, to be with you, to gather together. I've been with your students for the last uh, few days, or um, week over the last weekend, excuse me, and um, I can just tell you, I cry more and more in my old age. But if you happen to be a family that gathers with us, perhaps just maybe somewhat exclusively on our Disciple Now weekend, you're here with us each year as a part of this, you might think that I'm just a giant crybaby because that's all you've ever seen. Because every D-Now Sunday, it seems every year, I am moved to tears as I worship uh, with you. And it's such a joy. And I just want you to know that the tears that have fallen from my eyes this morning, the tears that you might see, the choked up that you might hear in my voice, those are tears of gratitude, tears of joy, tears of worship to Jesus. You know, this weekend is really such a labor of love. Dropping that mic there. That was not a mic drop. That'll be later, hopefully. But no, this weekend is such a labor of love, and as... Uh, Pastor Kyle alluded to, um, we're so thankful that we get to be here, that we get to worship in this way. You know, I like to quote the great theologian Meat Loaf when he said, I would do anything for love. These D-Now leaders, these college students, these young professionals that spent their weekend, they did not finish Meat Loaf's quote. They didn't say, I wouldn't do that. They say, I will do that. They were willing to do anything to ensure that our students, your children, might have an opportunity to know Jesus, to see Jesus at work in a life that's not too far ahead of them. I'm old. I'm not cool. I'm like you, parents. Some of you are cool still. Paul is. But they lo- these young people have given up this weekend to, to be Jesus sort of in the flesh, to display the love and the mercy and the grace and the kindness of Christ. And they've done everything. They stayed up late, got COVID tested, masked up without a complaint, jumped in ponds, sang karaoke, all to make sure that your students have an encounter with Jesus. And everybody that works so tirelessly that Kyle mentioned, our team, the host homes, you've done so much. And I just want our guests, those of you that are with us this morning because you're a student, we thank you, by the way. We thank you for entrusting your student to us for a weekend, especially in a year like this, to just have enough faith and confidence to, to trust that we're doing everything we can to care for them, to love them, to do it safely, but again, more than anything, to point them to Jesus. Last night... Caleb spoke, taught from Romans chapter 8. He preached a great message, a great message of freedom, and that freedom is found in Christ alone, and that freedom is found in the gospel. And this freedom, students, that you were with us last night, you remember it's not found in some sense, in the same senses that we often think of freedom, a license to do anything. But as Caleb said, freedom is found in obedience to Christ. 
And so as we continue that idea, continue that message or that theme, this idea of freedom and freedom that's found in Christ, I want to open up to Romans chapter 3 this morning. Turn with me there in your Bibles. If you have them, turn on your phone. If you don't, download an app. You can get there quickly. But here Paul addresses the work of the law. And very often the law and freedom are connected in a sense, especially in our minds. As Caleb said, and he alluded to this, he gave a great illustration just talking about the fact that, yes, we are free to do a lot of things, but those things often come with consequences because of the laws that we live in, the laws of our land. But in our text this morning, Paul is explaining how we, all people, are sinners, We're sinful, broken people. And that's something that I know, friends, especially guests. If you're a part of our church, you've heard this before. But if you haven't been, you might hear those words and that might seem harsh to you. It might seem like that's not talked about very often, unfortunately, in our world. Just the reality that this world is broken. And so when we say that we are all sinners, we're not saying that in judgment. We're saying that. In a sense, in unity, understanding that all of the world is broken. Things are not as they should be. And you and I play a part in that. Our flesh plays a part in that. And even obedience, obedience to the law, obedience to God's holy law, Paul is going to say, that's not enough. And when I think about what we so often strive for as I think about these students, and I know I'm a parent of three teenage sons, all have either been here now leading some, some form or fashion a part of this weekend. And so often as parents, we want our children to be obedient. We want our children to be moral, good people. But Paul explains that that's not really an option for any of us. That is not where we can put our hope in. So Paul, as he is working his way through this letter to the Romans, he explains that there's two types of people. In the context of Paul writing this letter, the two types of people were this. There were Jewish people, and there were non-Jewish people. It was an either-or. You were either Jewish, or you were a Gentile, not Jewish. Those were the two types of people. And those two types of people, those people were bitterly divided they were, they hated one another. This is not some soft sort of, they didn't think too high of one another. They kind of didn't like one another. They didn't share the same restaurants or eat together at a table. They despised one another. The Gentile people looked at the Gentile, the, the Jewish people, excuse me, looked at the Gentile people as though they were dogs. They would call them filthy animals. But Paul here in chapter three of Romans is addressing both sets of the people. And before we get to the text that I'm going to really focus our time on this morning, Paul is telling the Roman people and explaining that the law wasn't good enough to save either of these people. In Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, this is what he says, specifically speaking to the Gentiles. For all who have sinned without the law, those are Gentiles, they didn't receive the law, the holy word of God in the Old Testament, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. The Jewish people will also, who have received the law, they're going to be judged by it. For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, 
even though they do not have the law. What he's saying there is that even in their conscience, when they do the things, they try to obey the law of God that they have not received. It's because the law of God's on their hearts. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The Gentiles didn't have the law of God and it hadn't been given to them and yet he explains what we all know by experience. We all know right from wrong because it's written on our hearts. Like the Gentiles, they, many of us didn't necessarily grow up With the law of God, with God's word being taught to us, instructed to us, or doing any of those sorts of things. But we know that we know right for wrong. How do we know this? How do we know that it's in our nature that God's law is written on our hearts? Because those of us at the back of the room have kids. That's how we know. I also know because of my own life. When I was a boy, I loved... The super bouncy ball. I don't know if any of you young people know what that is, but it's like the multicolored ball that you could sling it across the room and it'd go all over the place and it'd break all sorts of stuff. But I, I love those things. I vividly remember as a young boy, I don't know exactly how old I was, but I was definitely very young. And I was in a grocery store and at this grocery store was like, a, it was like Mecca. It was like this holy land to me because there was a toy aisle and on the toy aisle there's this bowl of the super bouncy balls. I don't know what person in their right mind left a bowl of those things just open. But anyway, and I saw that ball and I thought to myself, I want, I want that. I might have had three or four others, but I wanted this new one. It had different colors in it, so I wanted it. And I remember thinking to myself, I think I could steal this. It's tiny. Even in my little tiny Wrangler pocket, I can sneak it in there. I could take this if I wanted it. I knew I could get away with it. Who was going to catch me? No one would know. But there was something in my conscience that I knew that that was wrong. Now you're saying, well, you had great parents. I did in some senses, but my mom had never taught me to not be a thief. I hadn't gotten that far along yet. She hadn't had to have that talk. But she hadn't sat me down and said, stealing is bad. Don't take things that aren't yours. Any of those kinds of things. It was just on my heart. I knew God's law about stealing before it was ever taught to me. And we all know deeply in our souls, even though we might try to push that off, when we are violating God's law. Some of us are old enough and have done it long enough that we've just seared our hearts that we are no longer sensitive. We've become desensitized to these things. But the truth of God's word is true. That God's law is written on our hearts. Even if we haven't received it like the Jewish people received it, like Gentiles, like all people, we, are, we know it in our hearts. And perhaps this weekend, students or parents, as you're gathered with us this morning, or if you're with us online this morning, watching up on the hill, perhaps this morning God might peel off some of the scar tissue around your heart and replace that heart with a new heart. But this is what Paul is addressing. And as we come to Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he's now going to address the Jewish people more directly. Those people who had received the law. 
And I think this is very helpful to us because although we are, I don't know anyone, I don't believe many of us at least in this room are Jewish or were raised in the Jewish faith. But many of us, I would expect in our context, in this sort of place in the world and in time, have been raised with some knowledge of the Bible, with some idea that Christianity is good. With some version of God's truth and word being taught to us in some capacity. And sometimes we can think that if we just do enough, if we just hold on to some of the virtues, some of the Aesop's fables that we were raised on, that that's going to be good enough for us. That that will satisfy God. But Paul addressing the Jewish people, he says, no. And it's worthwhile that we hear this same message. See, the Jewish people not only had God's law written on their hearts, but they were given God's law as God's people. They had been taught the law from birth. But the problem for them was the same as it was for the Gentile, and it's the same problem that we have. Romans 2.25 says, If you have received the law and you obey it, great. But if you receive the law and you disobey it, you're even worse, he would say, than the Gentile, because you know the law, because you have been taught so when we get to 3.9, this is where Paul is addressing us. And Paul rightly concludes that the law could not make us righteous. It could not give us a holiness that would satisfy God. It could not make us right before God. And too many of us in this life are often satisfied, placated, will do just enough to satisfy one another, to satisfy man, to satisfy the opinion that other people have of us. And we forget that there is only one that we are called to satisfy, and that's God himself. That's the life that we are called to look for. That's where holiness, that's the the calling on every one of our lives. And so that's why I want to begin there. Picking up Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul speaking to his own brethren. No, not at all. For we have already been charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. That's what I just shared. Quoting the psalmist, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul, addressing the Jewish people, he tells us again what we already know. That there's not one, not one of us who is righteous. Not one of us who is holy enough to satisfy God on our own. Now I know you're thinking this perhaps. You're saying, well, pastor, I know some pretty good people. I know some folks that are really nice. They're friendly. They're kind. They're hospitable. You might even go so far as to say, well, I don't know many of those, but pastor, I know you and, and you're a good person. Look, you're up there preaching. You're, you're delivering God's word. And you think somewhat highly of me. Let me tell you, I'm not a good person because there aren't any. I'm a sinner. You don't know my inner thoughts. You don't know my pride, my anger, 
my selfishness, just like I don't know yours. And so what you see in me, what you might call good, that's a righteousness that did not come from within me. I'm going to tell you where that righteousness came from in just a few minutes. You can probably guess it. But this is why trying to just fulfill the law, trying to just do the right thing, trying to be obedient, to just be good people is a futile exercise. Friends, we cannot be good enough. See, one of the lies that I see myself and so many of us falling for is simply trying to be moral people, to be a good people. And it's worth saying again, I've said it many times in our church, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came and did what he did to make dead people alive. And that's what he does. That's not my quote, that's a quote from an ancient old man, but it was true. If Jesus was simply after morally good people, just think about this logically. He's the God of the universe. He knows all things. And so if Jesus, all that he was after was to create a moral or a good people, why would he have to go to the cross for that? He didn't. The Pharisees, these Jewish people were living on the earth when Jesus came. Now their works, they weren't rooted in righteousness, but I guarantee you that if we met a Pharisee, we would all call them good and moral people, upstanding individuals. So I want to encourage you, friends, especially parents in the room, do not settle for good and moral kids. Jesus offers them and you so much more. So much more than that. Don't strive to be someone who just keeps the law, that just does the right things, is just good enough, makes the good choices in school, friends, in order to be perceived as good or moral. Do you know how oppressive that is? Let me tell you how oppressive it is because I see it in all of our lives. Students, you don't need to perform for God. Your grades do not indicate your righteousness. They do not indicate your relationship for God. Your fastball speed does not do anything for God in your relationship with Him. Your achievements, all the things that you hold on the wall that you pin, your friend relationships, the size of it, whether big or small, does not indicate your relationship with God. There's no performance. There's no lack of obedience. And this is what so many of you... And parents in the room, this is what I can tell you when I sit down, when these leaders have sat down and had heart-to-heart conversations with them. The weight of that oppression, that burden, that need to perform so they can be seen as good people, so mom and dad will be proud of them, it is killing them. It is a weight that none of us can live up to. And Jesus, he came so that we wouldn't have to, to give us something that we could not find on our own. And so parents, I want to tell you, you also do not need to perform for God. You don't need your kids to achieve something so that you can be accepted. We're all train wrecks. I'm a train wreck. You're a train wreck. Your kids are train wrecks. And I know that doesn't sound very nice, but here's what is. It's okay. 
Because God knows. God knows just how much of a train wreck I am, and He loves me anyway. Our theme verse, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And too often, religion, sometimes for some in this room, what you have done this weekend, just sort of going with the flow, doing the religious thing in our culture, it's become a yoke so heavy because you're trying to perform, you're trying to do something, you're trying to have obedience that would somehow make you right before God. But if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. You're freed from that sin. You're freed from performance. You're freed, as Caleb said last night, to worship. So Paul tells us, he tells the Romans, and I hope we can know maybe once and for all or perhaps for the very first time, just settle the account. We cannot be good enough. There is none righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God on their own. We all turn aside. We all do the things that the psalmist tells of in those later verses. You don't have to be good enough. God is saying that you can't. So if you can't, why would you keep trying to perform for others? As Paul continues in verse 21, he says this, or picking up in 19, I'll say, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, all that the law does, all that it it tells us, is it shows us that we can't possibly measure up. But it also points us to a holy one, to a righteous one that measures up on our behalf. Where the law can only do so much, there is a righteousness that is available, that is good. But now the righteousness of God, this is verse 21, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, you might be asking yourself, well, why did God give the law? Why is the Old Testament in our Bibles? Why do we even do any of these things? It's because, as the Bible says right here in verse 21, that the law and the prophets, they bear witness, they point to, they they direct us to realize the deficiency, the gap that exists there. Many of us in this room have sort of settled that account. We've settled the reality that we can't possibly live up. We can't possibly measure up. And the only way that we know that is because the law, whether it was written on our hearts or we have received it being taught in some way, is that we can't. But there is a righteousness. There is a holiness. There is a work of God that's available to us that is good. You might have felt for a moment, man, this guy is a real downer. He keeps telling us that we're train wrecks, that things aren't good, that we can't measure up, that everything is bad. Well, here's the great news of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is the righteousness that saves us. This is the righteousness that solves the problem. The law revealed the problem. It pointed to the problem. But this is a righteousness that, as he says, comes through faith In Christ, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's for everyone who believes and would receive it. The righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Through belief in what Jesus did. Your students have heard this many times through this weekend. But I'd be failing you if I didn't remind you if perhaps you have not heard this. That that deficiency that the law points us to, that shows us that gap that exists, Jesus came to bridge that. He offered a righteousness of himself. And he laid down his life on a cross. Three days later, he took up his life again, showing the power, his power over sin and death. How much he loves us to go to the cross and then to take up his life again three days later, conquering sin and death for all time. And all that Paul says, all that God asks, what is demanded of us is that we would believe that. Through faith, we would receive that gift of God's grace. And see, he says it's not just for the Jew or for the Gentile, but it's all of us who have sinned equally under the law. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This shows us once again how much we need a righteousness that we cannot find from within. In our church, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, those statements of blessing are where the sermon begins. And in one of those statements, one of the most powerful statements of Christ, he says, blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, when we look for a righteousness from within that in our context usually turns into a righteousness that's based on my performance, based on my own giftedness, based on my abilities. When we let go of trying to chase that down and we look to Christ and we put our faith in Christ and we begin to thirst and hunger for his righteousness, for a righteousness that we cannot find within our own hearts, Jesus promises us that we will be satisfied. We are going to kill ourselves if we keep trying to find satisfaction in producing a righteousness from within our own sinful hearts. It's only if we allow the law to teach us that we find ourselves, we're informed that we cannot do it on our own, and we begin to thirst and hunger for a righteousness from God. And he promises that we will be satisfied. Finally, Jesus, excuse me, Paul says, as he closes out this section in verse 24 through 26. He says, and all fall short of the glory of God, verse 23, but they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is only one who justifies, friends. There is only one who has a righteousness to offer us that is, will satisfy God. His name is Jesus. And this text says that God sent his son and it says this big, strong, loud and kind of challenging word. It says that he came as a propitiation, that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. That big word propitiation, here's what it means. It is a removal of the impediments to be with God by Christ's blood. 
He removed every obstacle that exists for us to be with God. Our own sinfulness, our own challenges, that own temptation to perform. He says, I removed it so that you might have relationship with me. He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin, to be nailed on a cross so that in Him, in Jesus, through faith in Him, through our belief in Him, we might be called, what? The righteousness of God. So I told you I'm a train wreck. I am. But you know what else I am? I am seen by the God of the universe as His Son, as righteous, as holy, as accepted, not because I've done anything well enough on my own, not because I performed enough, not because my kids did right, not because of anything that I could do on this earth, but solely based on what Jesus has done on my behalf, removing the impediments for me to have right relationship with God. That's what Jesus did. And this is what I love about this passage as we close. Verse 26, this is why God did it. It was to show his righteousness so that at the right time, he might be the just and the justifier. Sometimes you might find yourself getting angry with God, thinking God is oppressive, that God, all he wants to do is just look down upon you and judge you. And that's because he's so much other than us. He's so holy. He's so set apart. And so it might have been presented to you that in that holiness that we're over here. And yes, that is true. And it's because God is a just God that he has to judge sins, that he has to deal with those things, that he can't just allow them. You've probably heard this illustration many times before as you've been in church very long. But if there was a judge who every criminal that came before him, he just allowed them to get a pass and sort of go about their way, we would toss that judge off the bench. We wouldn't accept, we wouldn't settle for that. Why would we worship a God who is not just? But God, the Bible here, it says God is just. And that's why he must deal with sin. That's why he must, he had to levy his wrath against Jesus himself. And when he did that, he showed his justice and his love. Because he became not just the God who is just, but he became the God who is the justifier. The one who reconciles us to himself, who welcomes us. Jesus, the God-man, came and removed every impediment that there is to a relationship with God. So friends, this is how I'd like to close. I just want to invite you to lay down the yoke of trying to perform for God. Don't settle for being a good and moral people. But take Jesus' yoke. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. Take the yoke of faith. The law has shown us all. We fall short. We cannot measure up to what God demands of us. But our God is the just and the justifier. He is the one who sent His Son, Jesus, what this weekend has been all about. Jesus, as we sang, the name that is above every other name, Jesus, so that we might be justified. So the Father would look upon us and we would be able to cry out to Him as Abba, Father, as sons and daughters. 
we who were sinful in Christ through faith in Him have been justified and now through faith are declared the righteousness of God. Would you believe that? I plead with you this morning, believe. And so as we close, we're going to sing a song. I'm just going to close right now in worship, but I just ask you to bow your heads with me. And then the band will lead us. And I want to invite you to believe and be made new. Lord Jesus, I thank you for what you have already done this weekend. I thank you for your glorious word, your truth that we are able to hear, be able to read from this morning. It tells us, it teaches us that no, we cannot measure up. We cannot measure up to your holiness. We can't, we can't possibly do it on our own. And I pray, Holy Spirit, now would you come And would you take off the shackles that have imprisoned us to believing that we can perform, that we need to perform, that you expect anything from us other than faith and belief. And I pray as we sing, would you just wash over this room, wash over those gathered on the top of the hill, wash over living rooms where people are watching this morning online. Would you allow the hope of your good news, the hope of your gospel to just be sealed in our hearts. That you are a God who is just, but you are also the justifier. If there's anyone who doesn't believe, Holy Spirit, give the gift of faith that they might believe in the finished and the final work of Jesus. Your word says, Jesus, that when you had finished your work on the cross, you sat down because it was finished. You ascended to the right hand of the Father and you sat down because there was no more work to be done. Holy Spirit, help us to believe that is true this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. the world It couldn't fill me But man's empty praise Treasures it fade Are never enough And you came along Put me back together is now satisfied here in your love let's sing this out there's nothing oh there's nothing better than you there's nothing better than you there's nothing nothing is better
your best praise this morning. That is what Jesus does, and he is better, and I pray that this weekend you have been convinced of that. I'm going to have you sit down for your own legs just for one more time. This won't be very long. It'll be two minutes, and then we'll wrap up, and we'll be dismissed, but I do want to give you just some closing announcements, and as I do this, I'm going to ask um, Kyle to bring forward just in a moment. Just bring forward a bag. Kyle, I'm going to need that in just a minute. Um, but I want our students to know a couple things for the rest of this year, our calendar year. First of all, um, we, by the grace of God, are going to return to student camp in Glorieta, New Mexico. And so um, let me move out of the way. See, July 10th through the 14th. And so we, you, we want you to be a part of that. Students, parents, we would love for your students to join us as part of that. You know, there's nothing better than Jesus. Disciple Now is a great weekend, but Jesus is even better than Disciple Now. But we also want to just have you save the date for next year's Disciple Now. The Disciple Now 2022 will be January 14th through the 16th of next year. And then parents, we have something for you. Um, guys, I know that Valentine's is coming up and none of you have thought of it at all to this point. And so I'm going to help you out. And just let you know that on February 12th here at our church, I invite you back for our barbecue dinner and uh, just a great night out of fun. And we're going to invite some very good friends of mine, Scott and Kristen Kadersha. I like to call them, think of them as marriage gurus. They are awesome people. We will have a ton of fun. We will have Hutchins Barbecue. And so you can register for that even now uh, to be a part of our dinner. Sorry, kids, you cannot come to that. That dinner's just for mom and dad. All right. Okay, so finally, I want to introduce um, our parents, uh, students. You got to meet him last night, but I want to invite Caleb to come up. Caleb, go ahead, Macy, come up with him if you can. So this is Caleb Mucklow, and this is his fiance, soon to be Macy Mucklow. And uh, in May, not too long from now, but um, our students, you got to hear from Caleb last night. And uh, students, I, I can tell from just that response how much you were blessed by this. I know I was blessed and encouraged um, by your words and your leadership and just serving us through the ministry of the word. But one of the things um, that if you don't know, our church is just a little over six years old. And so our full-time staff include myself, Pastor Kyle, and Pastor Matt. Um, Caitlin serves as a ministry assistant with us, and, um, and yet as we have grown and we have seen this ministry grow, we have recognized um, just how old we are and um, the necessity, the need for these students to have someone um, who can shepherd and lead them um, much more intentionally, uh, more full-time. And so it is a great joy for me to announce that Caleb Mucklow is City Church's new student minister. So uh, Caleb uh, was here this weekend with us. He will begin uh, with us full time on February 1st. 
And uh, we are just so excited uh, about what God has done. I can tell you, I I won't take more time because I know we're running short on time this morning, but I'd love to tell you one-on-one just the story of how God brought Caleb to us. Um, It was clearly his providence that allowed us to arrive at this point for him to be with us. And um, Kyle, Matt, and I, and the whole team, all of our elders, just unanimous, is just so clear his calling to be here. Um, And so I can't wait. So students, just get ready. Look forward to beginning in February, every Wednesday, every Sunday, he'll be here with us and be with you, um, leading you. And uh, we're so thankful. And our team, um, we want to welcome you, Caleb and Macy. So dig in there. We want to welcome you to Cardinal Nation properly. So go ahead and just open this up. We want to ensure that you have the right gear. They come from play. Oh, you got to switch those up, buddy. You don't want that leopard skin. Yeah. So we're welcoming them to Cardinal Nation in the proper way, giving them some, giving them some gear. We're so excited about Caleb and Macy. We're so thankful for you guys. And um, thank you again for allowing your students to be a part of this weekend. Thank you for bearing with us in all of the craziness of gathering in an old-fashioned tent revival and uh, being up on the hill. Those of you online, we're so thankful for your patience with us as we acclimate and and learn how to do all of these things. So the last thing I've got is if you're in the back half of the room, about halfway where the students stop, if you would stack up your chairs, you can just take them. Your own chair is all you need to do. And there is a trailer right outside the tent that you can just stack those up. Our men are going to help us. That would help us save a lot of time. We love you guys. You're dismissed. God bless you. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 830 and 1030 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.